toward the surrounding region and to deliver a message of peace. And those who reject them were to be warned that they were rejecting the coming of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God had come near to them and they were rejecting it. And in our passage this afternoon, the disciples are now returning from their mission and they are excited to tell Jesus all about their experience. And it's interesting because there's a bit of a, of a, a sort of a, a recognition that their joy is, is right and good, and then there's also a rebuke about their joy. And so the idea was that, yes, it was good to be rejoicing, but what they were rejoicing in was a temporary power and authority, right? And as we know, power and authority does tend to have a corrupting influence. Uh, Whenever fallen men and women gain some level of influence, unless there are strong checks and balances in place, uh, you can bet that corruption is going to soon follow. And so I, I just finished reading A Tale of Two Cities for the first time, right? It's a description of the French Revolution, and the, it really, Dickens is criticizing the chaos and the violence of the French Revolution. He doesn't necessarily point the finger at, at, at any particular cause, but the impact was obvious. It led to anarchy. It led to, to just incredible amounts of bloodshed. And there are a lot of secondary causes that, that led to the revolt by the commoners, known as the Third Estate Society, up against the aristocracy and, and the elites of the society. But once they themselves were in power for a time, they began to perpetuate their own injustices, right? And it seems like the injustices just transferred from one hand to another. So power is not really the answer. It cannot be the source of our joy. It cannot be the thing we're living for. Even if it's an authority that's given to us. From God, even if it's for church leadership. And if I find my source of joy and happiness in my position as a pastor, then I'm looking to the wrong things because it's a temporary position. It's a temporary role. Well, not only did these 72 have success, they were filled with joy about that newfound authority that they had received by doing ministry in the name of Jesus and so Jesus initially responds by encouraging them and, and um, regarding that the authority, recognizing that he had given them authority. Uh, but he also challenges them regarding a misplaced joy. All right, power and authority cannot be our primary source of joy because it is a fleeting and temporary experience. And so I'd summarize it like this. Everlasting joy does not develop out of temporary power but hope in a future reward. Everlasting joy does not develop out of temporary power, but hope in a future reward. We should be looking to the, to the realities that will, that will last forever, those eternal realities, because that is the kind of joy that will only expand and grow and build upon itself rather than pass away. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the, the response of these uh, 72 disciples as they return from their mission joyful. That in itself is an encouragement to us, and yet we want to recognize where they went wrong. 
so that we ourselves are not caught up in the wrong kinds of things, that we're not placing all of our hope and joy in the wrong places. Lord, help us to find joy in what is a heavenly reality and what Christ has purchased for us and what he has guaranteed to us, that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept. It's reserved in heaven for us. Lord, we, we long for that, and may that be the joy uh, that fills our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, read with me Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So rejoice, first of all, we see verses in verse 17, this rejoicing in authority that they had received. Rejoicing in authority received. And so we began, uh, or we can begin by noting several positive aspects to their response, right, to their return from this mission. First, they were rejoicing and not grumbling. That's, that's a huge improvement from the Israelites, right? They're, they're rejoicing. They're not complaining. Why did you send us without any resources? Why did you give us such a hard task? Why did you make us warn people? Why did you give us all of these requirements that we really weren't ready for or prepared for? They didn't go out complaining or come back complaining about those things. They were rejoicing, and they had not been given an easy task. They had obviously met with opposition as Jesus warned that they would because he was sending them out as sheep amongst wolves. It was very easy to allow that to become the thing we focus on, right? The, the persecution that we're undergoing when we speak up about Christ. But they confidently obeyed their Lord's commission and they were filled with joy about its success. We could also say that they recognized that their authority was not personal, but that it was derived from Jesus. They didn't go out and do this work in their own name. They did it in the power of Jesus' name. And they didn't just use the name Jesus in place of abracadabra, as if it was some kind of magic spell they would cast on people. The idea is that they were going out and accomplishing their mission in the power of Christ, that he was the one enabling to do, them to do this work. And so they recognized that they operated in the power of Jesus. They depended upon Jesus as they went in his name. And so that would mean that surely they were depending upon prayer, as Jesus had called them to as well, right? In verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We can agree that that was also probably something that they were dependent upon, that they were walking in prayer. They were continuing to lift up uh, that particular request to the Lord to say, multiply our efforts here, Lord. Raise up more laborers to go out into the fields. So every generation of Christianity needs evangelists who are willing to face rejection and to press on with joy in the face of that opposition. We ought to appreciate missionaries 
who have gone before us and set an example in their message and in their perseverance. And it should stir us up to do the same. Every religious revival that has, been, that has borne lasting fruit has been rooted in prayer, in earnest prayer for the Lord to raise up people to go out into his harvest. And so we spent a week praying for our evangelistic events. And if, you, if you've lost your card or turned it into an airplane the last few weeks, grab one in the back and put it in your Bible and, and uh, remind yourself to be praying for these things. We weren't planning on just praying for a week and then seeing what would happen. We, want that, we wanted that to kick off our, our series of, of events and to continue to pray for them, to continue to ask the Lord uh, to grant favor and success in these efforts. So let us continue to do that and to ask the Lord to expand his kingdom here in Fresno and Clovis. Um, we are called to participate in the mission of the church. I think many of us are afraid what that means to us. Like we're afraid that we won't have the right things to say when we're talking to someone. But notice that in all of these passages, the, the last three times we've looked at this chapter, there isn't a script. Jesus didn't tell them exactly what to say or how to say it. At least, he, I mean, he, got, he gives them some language there regarding the warning to give, but in terms of the message of peace, they were just to go and to talk about the power of God and to give him the glory for it and to see what God would do through that, to, to, to call them to submit to the Lord and, you know, to recognize um, the peace that he offers. And so we should not fear that we have to have all of the right words to say in evangelism, that we have all the right answers that are gonna satisfy every concern a person raises. And oftentimes the concern that's given on the surface is not the real concern that's at the root of it. And so just being willing to listen, to ask questions is oftentimes where the spirit is going to, to move in a person's heart and, and to open them up to you and allow you to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So he tells us to go and share his message of peace, and there's not one way to do that. There's not one way to go about that. You can do it at any age, and if you have an understanding of the gospel, you can share that understanding with others. And Jesus responds to their joy then in verses 18 and 19, initially acknowledging the authority that he had given them. Verse 18, we read, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he notices that he, or he, he notes to them that he witnessed Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And the question we might have is, when, does, when did that occur? When did he witness this taking place? Is he reflecting upon a reference to Satan's initial fall? Uh, that, you know, the the fall prior to the, him finding himself in the Garden of Eden and tempting Adam and Eve? Was it a reference to that fall? You can read about that in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, as well as Jude 6. It could also be a reference to Jesus defeating Satan during his temptation in the wilderness. You read about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Maybe he's talking about the symbolic reference of binding and defeating Satan through the gospel proclamation of the 72. Like as they were proclaiming the gospel, Satan was being bound. And here's 
why that one makes a lot of sense. Because if you look over at the next chapter, chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, you read, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we know one of the tasks that they had was to heal those who were possessed, those who had demonic spirits. And we know that God granted them success in that. Well, the only way that God would, could grant them success in that was by first binding the strong man. As Jesus says here, verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In, in other words, he's saying, if I've come into this dark area of darkness where Satan has set up his own throne, the only way for me to cast out demons is first to bind the strong man, to bind Satan, so that that work can happen. Maybe that is symbolically what's represented here, the language of binding or, or casting out is... is um, is, is similar, or uh, it refers to the, the overthrowing of demonic opposition. Uh, it could also be a vision of Satan's defeat in Jesus' own death. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, or even a reference to Revelation chapter 20, the final defeat of Satan, a foretelling of Satan's fall at his final defeat. Well, I think it's most likely that Jesus is referring to a vision of the ongoing defeat of Satan, which in one sense began at Jesus' birth, where, where Jesus was, was by God's power able to thwart the um, scheming of the devil to destroy him as a child, to prevent his birth. Um, again, you'll read about that in Revelation 12. Um, there's also the idea that Satan, uh, uh, um, at the start of Jesus' ministry, was de victoriously defeated by, um, or by Jesus in that wilderness temptation. And then, of course, you do have the cross that Jesus defeated sin, and in his resurrection, he defeated death. So through the ministry of the church, as with the 72 disciples here, um, Jesus is continuing to conquer satanic opposition. There's an ongoing spiritual warfare that's taking place. And so it isn't until his return that he will finally put an end to Satan's influence. So at every point in the timeline, Jesus' disciples have been an integral part of the mission. They had indeed participated in the overthrow of the opposition. That's the connection here. They're celebrating that, that even the demons are subject to them as they minister in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, it's true. Satan's being overthrown all along the way. So Jesus acknowledges in the next verse, the disciples rise to authority. He says, I, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus acknowledges the disciples rise to authority. He first of all speaks of Satan's fall from authority and that in an ongoing way, and then the disciples rise to authority. 
Um, Moses warned the people of God to remember the God who delivered them from fiery serpents and scorpions. And so you have that represented in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. Moses tells them that God has been the one preserving and protecting you from fiery serpents and scorpions. God was their protection. The psalmist speaks of angels guarding him who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. And so that person receives the promise to tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So it seems like there's sort of a combination of these two illusions here and snakes and scorpions representing that spiritual depravity that was being overthrown. Okay, so of of course this may, in the background, you might be thinking about Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. The opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would remain. But the final crushing blow has already been delivered by Christ upon the cross. And there's a sense in which we as the church participate in Satan's defeat. Paul says that in Romans 16, 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So yes, he has been crushed on the cross. And then Paul, writing after that event, is telling the church, that he will soon be crushed under the feet, under your feet, and that God will fulfill his purposes in Christ as he fulfills those purposes through the church. And one of the ways he's doing that is as we fulfill the Great Commission, as we go out in the power of Christ, overthrowing the opposition, as the beautiful feet of the church participate in the proclamation of the gospel, the powers of darkness are increasingly brought under the submission of our sovereign Lord. And so none of his or our enemies can prevail over the kingdom of God. It's now our privilege in this generation to participate in our Lord's ministry. But from where should we derive our joy? And we think about that, op- that opportunity to overthrow Satan's kingdom, and maybe you're like getting excited, you're ready to Put on the armor and get out there and fight. The overcoming of darkness points to a temporary joy, and therefore it is a lesser joy. And that's the joy which the 72 had settled. They had stopped there. Because instead of rejoicing in their temporary authority, they should have been rejoicing that their names were written in heaven. They should have been rejoicing in that future reward. John Calvin says, he does not altogether condemn their joy as if it were groundless. Right? They're to be commended for the, their joy was in a, an authority that they had truly received from God. They were acknowledging that. And Jesus acknowledges that. But, it, but he does show it to be faulty in this respect, that they were immoderately delighted with a temporal favor and did not elevate their minds higher. They were delighting themselves in a very temporary reality. So true rejoicing will build for all eternity because it is grounded in our future heavenly reward. Don't rejoice in the subjection of the spirits because that will be a fleeting joy. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It is a privilege to have your name written in the book of life 
we ought to be filled with joy at the thought. Jesus seems to be implying that their evangelistic mission ought to be motivated by that hope, uh, by their hope. They were excited to experience and exhibit their authority, but it's a temporary and fleeting enjoyment. Those experiences would not always occur. But what would develop... um, An everlasting joy would be the expectation of eternity in heaven. That's the kind of joy that can only mature, that can only grow and build upon itself. So their confidence to persevere through earthly tribulation rests in the fact that their names are written in the book. That's Daniel 12.1. Paul encouraged participation and support in ministry by all whose names are in the book of life, Philippians 4.3. Those who conquer false prophets and worldliness will never have their names blotted out of the book of life, Revelation 3, 5. They have become citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem where they will gather with innumerable angelic hosts, maybe even as we consider this morning, around the throne of God and the assembly of all the elect who are enrolled in heaven, Hebrews chapter 12, 22 through 23. And then most fundamental of all, they will be in the presence of the living God. So nothing unclean, nothing detestable or false will ever interrupt our enjoyment of God for all eternity. That's where our joy should be placed. Even now, before we get there, because it's a joy that can only grow as we mature in our knowledge and experience of his presence. So why would we ever settle for lesser motivations. Rejoicing in temporary authority will only lead to the loss of joy when that authority is no longer experienced. Or you can replace authority with anything that brings you joy in this life. There are gifts, there are blessings from the Lord that you can appreciate and thank Him for and glorify Him with those gifts. But they're not to be the source of joy. That's to turn the blessing of God into an idol. Our joy should primarily be stirred up by everlasting realities. And so authority, power, wealth, their fleeting privileges of this life, marriage and family are to be enjoyed but not worshipped. None of these things can bear the weight of all of our joy. Set your joy first and foremost in the heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is around his throne that all the saints will engage in everlasting worship. And the hope of that kind of experience, that kind of joy is what we set our minds upon. So let us do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage And this reminder that we can enjoy and glorify you in the calling you've given us, whether we're um, raising up our children, whether we're going off uh, to work uh, day after day and, and doing our work as unto you. We want to honor you with our lives. We want to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you in Christ. Lord, we recognize that you have given us many blessings to be enjoyed, but help us not to misplace that joy, to to place all of our hope there, or to make that our primary source of joy, rather than the heavenly realities that you've promised to give. Or 
turn our mind and our hearts to those eternal realities. May that continue to build us up and fill us with greater joy. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.